Hey everybody, welcome back to the Week in Horror, October 20th through the 26th. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm JL. I'm Eugene. I'm Alex. This has been an amazing week. Um, I don't know what you guys have been up to, but uh, my wife is currently doing a uh, a kind of... She always does a, an October horror marathon where she does a horror movie every single day, uh, one that she has not seen. And she has seen some really crazy shit as of recent. But I wanted to give a shout-out, and if you guys haven't seen it, to a new one that just hit Netflix called In the Tall Grass. All right. Ooh. Which was uh, written by Stephen King and his son. It was based on a novella that was written by Stephen King and his son, Joe Hill. And fantastic, creepy little cosmic horror film. Um, really, really neat. Uh, leave it to Stephen King to make grass scary. <laughs> so, Unlike Midnight Shaman. You know, <laughs> the, the happening. No, he said scary, one, not a, funny. <laughs> But it was a really, really creepy, creepy horror film. Um, strongly recommended that. What, do, uh, what have you guys been up to? I uh, I also started in the tall grass and then fell asleep because it was way past my bedtime when I started it. Um, way I, to shit on my recommendation. Uh, I, <laughs> no, 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 no. It was really good. It was, it was super creepy. And I got up to a point where I'm kind of upset that I fell asleep because then my brain just kind of made the rest of the movie while I was sleeping. And that might've actually probably been worse than the movie. So <laughs> I have to go back and watch it just to reassure myself. There's not demons in my room. And, uh, but yeah, so far so good. I, I'm really excited to finish that one up. And uh, like you said, your wife is doing horror movies, and I've been searching through everything on Netflix uh, horror-wise, and I've seen a couple of uh, these new style TV shows that they're doing, where they're breaking down like short horror films, and these uh, Creeped Out is one. Uh, there's another one that I want to start. I think it's called Nightmare. Um, Are you talking about the the two second horror films? Uh, no, I did watch the or two, two sentence two sentence horror two films. Two sentence horror films. Uh, I watched that yeah. whole series. That was great. So if you're looking for some stuff to binge this month, that's definitely uh, they've got some good stuff on Netflix this month for sure. Oh, that's good. That's good. Um, I actually went back and revisited. Uh, I've been doing some study on some modern horror films. Uh, the movie The Witch that came out. Like 2015, 16? Can't bring right? myself to watch it. It looks too scary. It is creepy. Um, a lot of the filmmaking techniques they use, because they used almost all natural lighting, so it's all just sun and like candlelight with a really, really high-powered camera for it. So, and they did a ton of historical research. So they built the buildings, the costumes, and everything is like completely accurate to like the 1600s the pilgrims and you know it's one of those movies type of movies i love where it's not that many jump scares it's not that many kills but just the entire atmosphere like i've never i've never looked at like basically like grass since we've been talking about it and been like man that grass that pile of grass over there scares the shit out of me (laughs) i i i watched the witch and Yes, super, super creepy, slow burn, creepy film. Um, but almost as twisted was the, I found was the pure, the kind of like the, the depiction of the Puritan of the Puritan faith, and the characters in themselves, and how that that kind of mindset played into 
the horror as much as you know the obviously the going the the go the supernatural going ons. Um, I've never been so fucking scared of a goat in my life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which as to me one of like the most like gnarly kills. I won't say who. Oh, but yeah, yeah. You know who I'm talking about. I've I've oh, never yeah. seen somebody killed by a goat I, like that. I didn't. I didn't see that shit coming. I really didn't. <laughs> Damn it! Now I gotta so go that's, watch. That's it. Co- <laughs> So that's that's been what I've been I, up to this past weekend. I love it. I'm I'm getting to live kind of vicariously through my wife because uh, this so far she's seen uh, Candyman for the first time. Nice. Um, and I got to go back and watch that Tony Todd classic. Uh, she watched Chud for the first time. Okay. <laughs> she had never seen it before. Uh, so getting to getting to kind of go back and watch both classic horror and the, the, those cheesy horror classics that I hadn't seen in forever. So I really hope I get to show her, like, Basket Case and see what she thinks of that one. That'd be good. So, <laughs> yeah, I think she'll love it. But, yeah, a lot of fun. All right, well, this week we have a veritable bloodbath of classic horror to get into, so we'll kick this thing off. Eugene, what do you got? All right, so starting with the classics right here, we got a movie called Night Monster that debuted October 20th, 1942, right? This is actually a remake of a film called Dr. X from the early 30s, and it is directed by Ford Bede, and it is actually billed first by Bela Lugosi, um who played the original Dracula, but they actually build him first, but he actually only plays uh, a butler in it. So they're trying to use his name for name recognition. Um, but it actually does star Ralph Morgan, Irene Hervey, and Don Porter. And so what the movie so what the movie's about takes place in this like swampy region, right? And you have a couple of these doctors and these scientists and they go and they get together for dinner and they talk about uh, this new discovery of this Egyptian skeleton that comes about. Well, as they go and they kind of start talking about it, um, they start talking about kind of like who can see it, who cannot see it. Um, and then as night falls, the doctors start getting killed off one by one. And so the, the doctors and scientists are getting killed off, and they start doing this investigation with who's doing it, kind of like one of those murder mystery uh, dinner things. And I don't want to spoil the end because it actually has a nice, nice, nice twist. The killer is not exactly who you think it is. It does have a little bit of a supernatural element to it. Um, But going off of of this movie, Night Monster, um, we start getting into a lot of stuff in terms of, what was it, the pre-Hail Code? Haley Code? The hay, the haze code. Yeah, the haze code, the hay code. Yeah. So uh, this movie actually ran into a lot of issues with the haze code at the time, which was the predecessor to the Motion Picture um, Association, which regulates all the films where it's rated R, PG thirteen, all those ratings that we're familiar with today. They had a different rating system back then, and basically during the nineteen forties. Everything was pretty much like, no, you couldn't do You could not talk about sex. You could not talk about marriage, childbirth. You could not talk about religion in a bad way. You could not talk about – and this heavily affected a lot of films like Casablanca uh, and Maltese Falcon and some of the other ones that talked about – that came out in the 1940s. You know, Otto Preminger was a huge opponent 
to that, to the to the whole Hayes Code and the whole basically what he saw as censorship in films, and kind of led to its downfall uh, by pushing you know, but he pretty much pushed the envelope in everything that he did. Um, legendary director who pretty much single handedly killed the production code and led to the the creation of the MPAA and the rating system we know today. And it, a lot's and you, changed. And you start getting like they kept pushing it, kept pushing it stronger and further to the point where you had directors like Alfred Hitchcock who were just like, "I'm not going to follow this." When he when he released Psycho, he was basically, "I'm not going to do this." And they're like, "Well, fine, let your movie fail." And then obviously Psycho became a huge thing, and people started realizing that you know what, the code's kind of ridiculous. Yeah, because if they if they didn't fall in line. Because I think it was that that uh, there was a, there was an asshole um, named Bream, who <laughs> I think it was if they were Brain or some some shit like that, who was pretty much the the he was like it was like a Catholic layperson who was pretty much just laying down the law uh, across like across the board, and it took revolutionaries like Preminger, like Hitchcock, um, to really kind of shut the door in his face and be like, "Fuck you, we're gonna do it, we're gonna do it, even if even if we don't get certification to go to theaters." And thank God for people who who saw ahead. Yes. <laughs> and it was and it was television that really kind of killed it because when you can you can get the same thing on TV uh, as you can get at the movie theaters. Movie theaters got to kind of draw people back, and so yeah, the uh, advancements of technology kind of killed that thing. Yeah, so, so archaic, so puritanical. <laughs> Oh, yeah. It's like prohibition, you know, we're like, we're going to do the morality. The country should be like this country should be like this. And then everybody kind of starts going for the what's not moral, you know, leaning towards. Well, and then, you know, you know, that the... had a lot to do, too, with like after that, you, you mentioned prohibition and just like in any sort of prohibition, people are going to make their way around it. But then coming out of it, you know, those elements became a lot stronger in film. Because they're allowed to, and then you had this push and pull between movie and TV, and advertising starting to pick up, and so all those moral issues that nobody wants to talk about kind of became cool. And then you start getting into the '60s, and you know it starts getting even weirder in the '70s. <laughs> A lot of weird stuff came out of that that whole uh, ban on being able to just be a human being, and like you said, trying to control it. Communism wasn't working out like. <laughs> That whole thing was bound to fail, but it, it produced very controversial films and uh, filmmakers being able to express themselves. So it's kind of a boom after that. So you got to wonder, because the nature of America being based on puritanical values, and we still see that today with how we, how American audiences respond to nudity and kind of the, the you know, there's still taboo subjects. We like to think that there aren't, but there still are. And they're slowly but surely going away. But back in the you know back in the day, so you're talking about in the 1930s. I think the Hayes Production Code kind of fell. They started kind of enforcing it about mid 34. So we so America was fresh out of World War One, and it kind of gave rise. You know, then you have like the the Roaring Twenties, and then this kind of after we got out of World War One, the kind of sigh of relief. That the war was over, the the economy was booming, and people got a little bit looser because you had flapper girls, then you had speakeasies and all kinds of fun stuff, and people were partying a little too hard. And then those those people in power who kind of supported those puritanical values, and I guess may, probably erring on the side of profit, 
because they didn't want to dissuade too too many people to, uh, to come and see films, kind of put the hammer down. It was kind of like a a, a gut response or a knee a knee jerk response to the people opening up opening up in the twenties. And then they that kind of hit with entertainment, hit with this stuff like the Hayes Production Code. And then we see that again and again. We see like the fifties, the tight knit of the fifth, the tight knit family unit of the fifties, the beginning of the nuclear family. Mm-hmm. And then uh, the sixties happened. And then of course it's just like kind of an ebb and flow. And we see uh, all all genres, not 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 just horror, but all genres begin to kind of reflect the state of the country. In what they put out and what they're willing to put out, and I think horror is unique among that because they're so willing. Horror directors so willing to push that envelope every single time, kind of like this is what we need, this is what we're missing, and it always kind of reminds people and brings people back to earth. Well, in that level of entertainment. Well, there's a there's an exciting element about it because it's we, we sometimes we like to do things that aren't you know they're a little bad, they're a little edgy. People went to speakeasies. For a thrill kind of thing. And I think horror movies, when you start pushing that, and all of a sudden it's like, ooh, you're not supposed to make a movie about it, but somebody did now want to go see it. It kind of adds to that little extra element of it. That kind of look is like, okay, you know, I'm kind of fighting the social norm. I'm kind of fighting the rich wigs that tell me what I should do. I'm being a rebellion. So it's like a rebellious act to see these movies. Yes. That era was all about rebellion, for sure. <laughs> oh, absolutely. I think that thing was it was the it was the the deep sigh of relief. We were out of World War One. You know, our soldiers had come home. Uh, everything everything was calming down. Then, of course, you know, post war, you know, the economy was just just exploded. People had money, and then boom, Hitler. You throw in the you, and then you throw in the uh, you throw in prohibition. And that kind of like put the stamp on things, and people kind of reacted that way. And I think the Hayes Production Code was a, was kind of an, another kind of you know just them trying was the I would want to say the pervert you know the proverbial them, but those in power wanting to put the moral you know it's hard to say. Would we, uh, I I honestly believe they want to say that it was the moral uh, that that these were films of moral turpitude that. They were protecting the the moral hygiene of the country. They, were, they did not want to disseminate or spread immoral material. But I'm inclined to believe that this actually fell in the way of profits. That the vast majority of the country, the people who go to movies and people who saw movies, did not have these, this niche mentality of, you know, going out and partying at night or, or this, you know... Enjoying these kinds of these kinds of films, these kind of avant-garde or avant-garde or uh, exploitative films, and so they, I believe, they were erring on the side of profit. That control the competition. Keeping films, exactly, keeping films clean would bring people, would keep people going to the theater, would keep people go, going and buying and buying movie tapes, would keep box office up. Um, as long and if as long because they wouldn't have to worry about, oh, am I going to see something tawdry in this movie? You know, something that's going to make me feel uncomfortable. That's not going to make me want to go back to the theater. And if not more, if not equally, then more so. I think it was on the side of money. It was profit. They saw profit in in cleanliness and control. I agree. That's fair. I do. It always comes down so, to profit. Always. So, Night Monster. Do you think that that movie 
going back to 1942, do you think that that movie stretched to the limits of that law? Do you think they were pushing the envelope on that movie? Or do you think that kind of stayed within the guidelines of this, you know, afraid to not be able to produce? I think the interesting question would be if they didn't have that guideline, what would they have done? Because just going back and doing some research on it, they had a couple of things that were kind of borderline with it, but you can tell like the laws already been or the rules already been in effect for so long, and everybody's writing to it, everybody's biting by to it. So it's like a, it's like somebody today. I have to make a G-rated movie, so I have to do it this way. And then it, the the good question would be, well, okay, you have a G or PG rated movie. Now you can make it rated R. What would you do? Good point. And I mean, I mean, coming to like nowadays, I just went and saw the Adams Family in theaters today with my daughter, and having a kid and going to some of these movies now, like you, you kind of watch out for stuff like that. You know, having a family, and it's a lot easier for me to go to a movie with my kid. Uh, if it, now that we've got like the MPA and like uh, all the ratings that are in effect, you know, you kind of trust that. And I went and saw this movie today, kind of worried about how it was going to go over. And they they have like a really good like adult child balance in those movies nowadays. And I think they're kind of finally coming around to, to wrapping some of that stuff up into this perfect little how can we make it better for everybody? Because like I said, I've got a kid. It's hard to get to a movie. I don't, I don't want to go to a movie and be like, is it going to be bad? Is it going to be good? Worried the whole time. I want to enjoy it. And just having that rating system in effect, rather than being like, no, you can't show any of this. You can't show this. Well, okay, you can show a little, but be like, hey, you probably shouldn't let your kid go to this until they're about 14. I think that really, I'm, I'm glad that it worked out more this way and not the other way. Because our society, I think, would probably be a little different if they would have kept those laws in effect. I, I agree. It's the fact that you can make pretty much anything you want to make today and then just realize it's going to fall under a certain rating and your viewership is going to be based on what that rating is. I, that's a much better system. I agree. Absolutely. So uh, we can we can move ahead from that terrible, terrible law that would, would not have allowed this movie to be produced. <laughs> <laughs> One day and 63 years later, Dwayne The Rock Johnson and a whole bunch of people from not anywhere near America got together and starred in this movie, this is, of course, Doom, released in 2005. Um, <laughs> the, <laughs> being, being born in the 90s and growing up with the original Doom all the way up until you can still play it, um, this, movie was, this movie was based off of Doom 3. Uh, which was released, I believe, a year before the movie came out. And everybody was so enthralled by Doom 1 and 2 for so many years, they thought they could get away with making a, like, a first-person shooter-type movie because video games were super big and Call of Duty and everybody was super into it. And then they, they come out with this movie, Doom, which, as much as I like to harp on movies like this, it was a cool concept for the time. Um... You know, there was a lot of shooter movies out, action movies and stuff, and Dwayne The Rock Johnson being such a big name uh, already in everybody's household uh, was it was it was terrible to see. It was terrible to see him let himself be that way in a movie. I guess I don't know. I don't even know how to explain because it was it was one of his first 
big okay. movies. Now, the, okay, the film, the film itself, and I'm so torn Dwayne, on this. <laughs> and Dwayne Johnson actually made the crack during uh, some some presentation, some uh, awards deal that. He he come and he said, "Hey, did anybody see Doom?" He's like, "Okay, don't worry about it. No one else did either." And you know what? That was like a. It was it, he loved the movie up until people started talking shit about it, and then he started like, "Yeah, I can't believe I played in that movie." <laughs> which which is a shame because he okay. First off, you had you had Dwayne Johnson, you had Carl Urban, Carl Urban, mm-hmm. okay, John Grimm. Uh, if, if you've if you've ever played in the series of the game or anything. Uh, John Grimm, uh, uh, Rosamund Pike. Oh, doing. I mean, I'm sorry, and I love her to death. I really do. But she did not have her American accent down. No, just said, and that was just that just was really off because Carl Urban had a totally Midwestern. Uh, yeah, and, except know, uh, except not. If you go back and watch it now and really listen to it, there are so many parts of that movie where he is straight up New Zealand, like. <laughs> straight up but these guys uh but okay these guys sold those sold those parts okay they they believed in it they went hardcore i enjoyed what i i actually i enjoyed several parts of it i i personally we wouldn't have we okay the first person shooter scene was was not handled as well as it should have been in my personal opinion agreed but I mean, you, you know as well as I do that the first time Dwayne Johnson picks up the BFG 9000, okay, you know it's going to be on at that point. Okay, that was a highlight. It was, it was picking up the uh, picking up the the uh, the big fucking got the gun. BFG. <laughs> the BFG 9000. It's like this is going to be sick. Um, the we wouldn't have lines like "I need soldiers," you know, shit like that. <laughs> Just the way Dwayne Johnson delivered that. Mutinous insurrection is punishable, eyebrow by death. <laughs> so and this movie, this movie, just for reference, uh, it, it takes place uh, in 2046, and uh, you kind of gather that just by the beginning. It says 2026, and so the premise of this movie is just basically these space marines uh, shoot themselves through this ancient technology to Mars and this old. Uh, this old city, I guess you could say, on Mars, where these scientists are doing experiments and something goes horribly wrong. And just like any great movie from that era, it followed the very, you know, go in, all of a sudden there's a monster, shoot, 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 everybody dies. And then, you know, it, it was super typical. But then they tried to throw that first person shooter scene. And it was cool that you brought that up, how it wasn't done well, because it took them 14 days to shoot that sequence. Oh my and god! So like, wow. they had so much time on it, and still came out just so like really, you know, you could have done very. They did very better hum- in '92 in the video game. Than, <laughs> <laughs> but think yeah. about it this way too: um, they offered uh, the Rock the uh, position, or not the position. I'm sorry, the role of uh, uh, John uh, Grimm. And so he turned that down because he felt Sarge was a much more interesting role. And he actually took a pay cut. Uh, uh, Carl actually ended up taking a higher pay than The Rock on that one. It was the whole thing. He said it was more interesting. And so you, can you imagine anybody else in that role? Who, who else could you put in that role? I, I don't see anybody who could deliver those lines and make them even a quarter believable. 
He's a first. Okay, so I'm gonna bring up one scene if you can remember this when uh, when the rock shoots was a si- Carmack the scientist. Car uh, Carmack, yeah, Carmack. And so when <laughs> he looks at like when he looks at Samantha, and she, you know his his condition is irreversible. <laughs> you don't know that. And he's like. <laughs> Dr. Carmack's Dr. Carmack's condition is irreversible because Dr. Carmack's condition is that he's dead. (laughs) (laughs) It was great. But so fun fact, though, they originally uh, scripted and actually had Arnold Schwarzenegger uh, was going to be Sarge in that movie. And there was an incident that happened uh, it was a tragic incident. I, I don't know many details on the story, but apparently two kids were messing around pretending they were a doom guy messing around with a chainsaw. And one of the kids ended up getting clipped and killed. And so oh. Arnold Schwarzenegger's team pulled him from the movie because of it. And so like there was just like a whole mess at the beginning. Who the hell is going to play Sarge? Like it was okay. Arnold Schwarzenegger. And then the rock was already scripted as uh, John. And then, it kind of flipped around, and so it's, it's like, okay, let's get this straightened out. And so that, that incident actually happened in, like, 1999, so the film was supposed to come out um, before that, and then, yeah, it was just a mess, and so they finally got it out. You get into that movie, and the, the first scene you see is, like, Mars, and you can tell it's papier-mâché, and then when the door's getting ripped open at the beginning, you can see, like, the drawing lines on where they animated it, and so it was it was, it was terrible, in so many ways, but it was kind of cool. <laughs> I kind of liked it. It, 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 it was, it was, it was, it was so bad. It was good. I think mm-hmm. some good one-liners. Some uh, okay, that fight between Carl Urban and uh, the Rock at the end was, pr- I thought, was pretty sweet. It's not. What it, are you I gonna think, do? He's <laughs> got the BFG pointed at him. I've got. One round. I've got one round. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. He's like, how many you got? Half a clip. I got one, one round. I've got one round. Yeah. <laughs> As only The Rock could deliver. I think <laughs> I think The Rock saved that movie. It would have been absolutely abysmal um, if it hadn't been anyone anyone but him. And I think it's just because he loves, he loves what he does so much and dedicates everything he's got to bring it to life. I mean... Sometimes you read a script, and I can speak from experience. Sometimes you read a script, and you're looking at the lines. You're like, what the fuck is this dialogue? What the <laughs> hell is going on? And it's like, it, not all of us have the balls to be like Gary Busey in Silver Bullet. Because um, in that in that werewolf flick, Gary Busey ad-libbed like, all of his lines. Like, yeah. He was like, he totally oh, went wow. off script. And, was, and he was good enough that Stephen King and the director... Both is like the, the the shit he's coming up with is better than what we wrote. Hell yes, let him go. Just just let him do what he wants. So, and few of us have those kind of balls. Of course, few people have the balls of Gary Busey. But true, true. I like how you bring up dialogue too. So, just fun fact: Simon Pegg was actually asked to come in and like polish the dialogue on that movie, and he totally turned it down. <laughs> the beginning. So like, there was so many. There was so many. Simon Pegg. You got uh, uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger. Like, there was so many things that could have gone differently with that movie. But like you said, I think The Rock definitely saved that that movie. I. I it's like it's the same. The same thing is that you think about uh, think about like Will Smith turned down the role of Neo right. in the Matrix. So it couldn't be a happy accident. Exactly. 
Yeah, for some. And that whole and then, movie, that whole movie was a happy accident. Then you might accidentally play in the movie, so you know you got to deal with that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, overall, overall, I think being from that time period when you know Call of Duty and all that stuff was coming out, I think it was a bold move, and I think if if you've got you know an hour and a half or two and a half hours, I can't even remember now. Kill hey, it. it's I, def- definitely I, worth I, a I, watch. I, I, I was totally excited to see it. I went to the premiere and I actually got a Doom hat that I still have <laughs> nice. sitting here in my office. So actually, it, it, it was too small and it didn't fit my my enormous 20-pound head. But I still have it sitting around here somewhere in my collection. But yeah, that was that was sweet. I remember, I remember I was excited in the theater and then like five minutes walking out, I was like, what the fuck was that noise? Huh. You know, at, the, at the very least, it's not the worst video game movie ever made. Not the worst video game movie ever made. This is true. Yes. <laughs> probably helps that, like, it probably helps, too, that Doom was, like, one of the, it's still even considered one of the best video games ever. You know, they've made, like, yeah. what, seven, eight, nine of them, still making them now, so. They did, uh, they did not pull, they did not pull a Super Mario Brothers on that. Yeah, <laughs> Doom, actually, I think Doom, it was either this year or last year, got inducted into the, uh, the video game Hall of Fame, so. That's cool. Well, going on from that craziness, <laughs> one one year earlier, we got on October twenty second, two thousand four, and this one still haunts me quite a bit. Uh, it was the back when you know, when the ring kicked off the whole American adaptation of J- of J horror of a Japanese horror coming over. We got the Grudge. On October twenty second, two thousand four, and for those not familiar, the Grudge was this was an American remake of a Japanese horror film called Juon, and it's based on the Japanese concept that if a human, if a person dies, and in a violent and terrible manner, then a curse can be born from the violence of their death. And that curse can inhabit a space, like a home, or the area where that person died. And anybody who comes into contact with that curse is they themselves cursed. And that curse will follow them, bringing them nothing but misfortune and eventual death. And this concept is terrifying in uh, in thought. And you know, but the film itself. I think is one of the most successful adaptations of a J horror film. This one's uh, the director from the original came over and actually worked on this movie and the original family that starred in it and the Japanese versions actually came over and reprised their roles in the American version. And it initially started, uh, started Sarah Michelle Geller of Buffy fame mm-hmm. who played a nurse who eventually comes into contact with the spirits of the house also starred Jason Bear, Bill Pullman, Clay Duvall, and of course brought over uh, Ryo Ishibashi and Takako Fuji and Yuya Ozeki and Takamashi Matsuyama, and all reprising their roles Bless from you. the previous. Yeah, <laughs> all reprising their roles from the original franchise. Um, this film, it's still it's still kind of. Uh, I mean, this was shit. This was you know fifteen years ago. And this film still kind of haunts me because there are some moments in this movie. The camera work alone and the lighting were so significant in creating an atmosphere of unrelenting dread. 
because you didn't have to be. That was the thing that got me is that you, we, if you came into contact with these spirits or with this curse, this thing followed you no matter where you went. So you just because you got out of the house doesn't mean that you got away. And so the, the unrelenting terror of being chased by something, I hadn't experienced that. Uh, I hadn't experienced that in film, really. And this one, this one got me. Uh, still kind of freaked out about it to this day. Oh yeah, oh yeah. This I remember seeing this, and the cinematography. There's you. You never feel at ease. Like so there are certain movies where, like during the daytime or something like that, like oh well, nothing's gonna happen. And then it's like the night, kind of like Paranormal Activity, is like that. This movie, you're on the edge of your seat the entire time. Anything can happen at any moment. And then when it cuts to at night, it's even worse kind of thing and the fact that it followed you and there's there's a certain rule or law um things that look human that don't move in a human way naturally freak us out so they use this and they played into it so the movements of the way the ghost moved you know the camera work the way these ghosts were revealed it's just creepy it's unsettling like you okay you see the big bad in front of you, and it's still creeping you out. How oh, fuck, I'm getting chills. I was going to say, what, you, you don't walk down the stairs like that? <laughs> <laughs> the, I'm telling you, man, it was, I was sitting on my seat, I was transfixed by this film, but that whole, there, there, was, a, there was a sequence of events when these murders, these, these deaths start, uh, begin taking place, and there's this detective who begins investigating the crimes um, thinking that there's a human element, unaware of what's actually going on. And there's this moment when he's reviewing security footage in a hospital. And they're tracking Sarah Michigala's character because they believe that she's the one behind everything. And she's running from the ghost. One, one of the ghosts, because there are actually three. Uh, but she's running from the ghost. And there's this... And I, it's hard to describe... She's running down the hallway, and he's watching the security camera, and everything looks as normal. And all of a sudden, you know, you get the the kind of light flicker because he's in the dark. He's in the kind of like the dark security office, and the only light is coming off of the screen, and the screen is really bright. And so you got this really, really front, you know, you know, blast of light in the front, and then the ghost comes walking down the hallway, visible on the screen, and then the you know the camera, the the the, uh, the screen on the security monitor starts flickering, and the lights start kind of like flickering. And everyone's kind of like, what the fuck is going on? And then the ghost just kind of walks down the hallway. And once it breaks frame, everything returns back to normal. You know, the resolution on the security feed goes back to normal and then everything's good. But then all of a sudden, it flicks again. And then this shadow starts moving up into the frame of the end, just, and, you know, filling the security camera. And the notion of that, that blackness coming in and then those eyes... Yeah, opening yeah. in it that was <laughs> that shook that that shook me and there was a there was an almost i want to say there was an almost terrible beauty to well because when we find out what happened and what created the events and now i don't want to give too many spoilers away if you haven't seen it but in essence the 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 patriarch of this japanese family the traditional japanese family loses his mind um, for reasons I won't go into so you can see the film, but loses his mind and murders his family. 
and the violent methods in which they died. It was his wife and his little boy. And the violent math, uh, methods in which they die um, is what created the curse. And they shot it. They shot the cinematic breakdown of this epic level of violence. And there was this kind of horrible tranquility to what was going on in the house when that went down. And, you know, they, cause they brought the original actors who played these roles in the, in Juon in the Japanese version. And they just, they sold it. And it was, you feel of, uh, you feel an almost instant connection and almost a disconnect as well from the culture, from the Japanese culture and the view of honor and honor of the family and honor of the family name. And the, but you connect with the violence, but you're dis, you, you totally dissociate from the, from the reasoning or the the uh, I would say the the modus behind it simply because you know why would you I can understand this but why this and that I think the movie is brilliant at keeping you off kilter in that respect it's like you you can get here but the you have this did this wall that we can't get by and I mean, another element that it has and we've talked about it in a couple of episodes in the past is that there's a certain realism to it. You know, where it's like, you know, I know Michael Myers and Jason isn't going to come and pop up here. But the thing is, is like, we know violent things do happen in the real world. And, you know, they happen here and they happen there. And a lot of these residents, you know, you'll have some kind of a brutal murder or something like that. And the house gets cleaned up and sold to somebody else and they live there. And a lot of times we live in places where we don't know the past kind of thing. We don't know what could have happened there. And, you know, we we know this, but we kind of keep it in the back of our mind and we kind of carry on kind of the, unless, you know, you build your own house or something like that. And so it's so easy to get tied into because what if you're in the wrong place at the wrong time? What if you go and you get to the wrong location and then you have this thing that's after you that you can't shoot it? You can't run away from it. It can get you to you at any moment at any time. So it takes that feeling of safety from you. Ah, uh, home sweet home. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's interesting you brought that because the two films, you know, that obviously take heavy inspiration, It Follows, um, I think was st- strongly inspired by the concept of the inescapable curse. You know, the, the consistent need to run to survive. Um, but also, in, uh, a, a gem that I love, 1408. Oh, uh, yeah. based on the, oh my God. When, when do we get the to short do that by Stephen. <laughs> it was based on the short story by Stephen King. Um, 1408, uh, the character, uh, actually, I'm going to reference the movie because I've uh, the, both the short story and the, the movie were fantastic. I actually think the movie was better in some respects um, just because Sam Jackson, I fucking love him. I, but, I can agree on that aspect. Yeah. Uh, but uh, Mr. Ed, but the, the writer, Enslin, uh, played by uh, John Cusack. Um, had that moment where he's talking into his recorder because he's he's a writer. He he takes he uh, he basically dictates his own notes, and he was talking about how hotels are are invariably creepy places because you don't know how many people have, who has slept on that bed, how many of them have been sick, how many of them have been crazy, how many of them have died. You know mm-hmm. the the history of where you're at now. You're just you're just wantonly walking into this room and accepting it as your own, having no concept of what went on around you, or what horrors existed in this room. And and it's so clean and tidy and everything's nice, so we just accept it at face value. But the history of things, re, you know, especially when you start digging into it and churning it up, can create some, some really creepy tension. 
You never know what you're walking into. Absolutely. You never know the in, you know, the energy or aura or something like that of a particular spot. Oh, God. Now I'm looking behind me. And well, yeah. <laughs> Stop it. That's a, that, that's a really good point on the whole human uh, element of it. Being, yeah. <laughs> It's, it's cool that you bring the whole human element into it because, like you said, you've got the, the scare. You can't get away from it. It's just there. You know, you've walked into this thing that you know nothing about and you can't really you can't really explain it. And in, like, horror films, a, a huge part of my horror film, I guess, obsession is, like, I like to go in and watch these things and be like, well, if you just did this, you'd get away. And so a good horror film, to me, is somebody that kind of takes, like, everything into consideration okay you've got these scary killers or something you, you can avoid these situations but then when you get into that spirit realm you start talking about curses it, it, you, you just can't it's it's gripping and then at the end of this particular film um not to give the ending away but you sympathize and so like you're terrified out of your skull you're looking behind you you've got that feeling somebody's watching hey this stuff could happen to me it changes your whole it, it, your psyche in a way because like you said seeing the way that that the, the boy moves and like that stuff will stick with us for you know it, that was in 2004 and it's still scaring us as grown men you know like it, that psyche play and then at the end you sympathize it really kind of like it made this film absolutely one if you've seen it you know you'll never forget it it's something that'll come with and stay with, just like it, you know, it follows. That curse stays with you. This movie would stay with you. Mm -hmm. Break your brain kind of movie. Well, and thankfully, we've got from out of coming out of Sony Pictures, there's going to be a rem a remake or a reboot of The Grudge coming in 2020. January 3rd, 2020, we get the official remake on it and I'm actually excited about it because um, Sam Raimi, yeah, is behind is is producing it. Good. So we've got some good names. Uh, Sam Raimi, Robert Tappert, and uh, Takashige Ichise is are all behind it, and it's and uh, they brought in one of the co-writers on it was uh, what was his name? Um, Nicholas uh, Nicholas Pesh, who uh, wrote The Eyes of My Mother. Uh, okay. Which was a okay. terrifying little little black and white film that you can see on Netflix as well. Um, but with though with such, I think with such heavyweight names behind it and such imagination behind it, I think we're gonna get a really really creepy reboot. Um, I hope so. But fingers crossed, fingers crossed, we get to to revisit the Grudge in 2020. Yay! Something else to have nightmares about. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, ooh, ooh, ooh. oh, shake that one off. God. All right. Okay. So we got moving on to our next film after, you know, me constantly checking my shoulder and stuff like that, you know, as I sit here by myself in the dark. Um, <laughs> so the next film we're talking about uh, came out uh, October 24th, 1986, and is by the creators of Reanimator, uh, that cult film. It's called a film called From Beyond. And yes, I fucking love H.P. Lovecraft. H.P. <laughs> Lovecraft. There should be more adaptations of it. Should be. Um, the film was directed by Stuart Gordon, who did direct the Reanimator, right? 
Um, and then it goes and it stars uh, Jeffrey Combs, Barbara Crampton, Ken Force, and Ted Sorrell, if I can pronounce his names correctly. And what it is is it talks. It starts off with uh, Doctor Edward starts developing a resonator, and what the machine does is he's trying to see beyond our normal form of perception because in like light spectrum we can only see so much. So there's so many things that could be happening around us that we don't even know, which is kind of creepy to begin with. Now that we think about it. And so he goes, he starts developing the machine, and he goes and he starts bringing back this creature, and the creature goes and it kills him, and they find his decapitated body. And so they start investigating into it, and they start turning on this machine, and they start having different reactions. All of a sudden, the doctor starts coming back, and the girl who's investigating kind of starts liking it, and they're like, no, we need to destroy the machine, and then they kind of start staying in the house with it, and um, all this other kind of stuff. This is another thing I don't want to give the ending away to it, but it is definitely in the same style of Reanimator. The practical effects are insane in this movie, um, totally on the level of the thing from John Carpenter in the 1982. Uh, the kills in this film are brutal. It holds nothing back. It hits on sexuality. It hits on so many things. That that core group and all the films that they made, they like to do that visceral, practical gore in your face, and it is fantastic. I remember that line. It ate him. <laughs> <laughs> that was, it was so, it was so wild. The shape changing uh, effects in that film were so twisted. Um, like a combination of the thing and American werewolf and, or, you know, American werewolf in, in London. And just, it had such a, it was a very visceral um Sensation. You could, you definitely got a, a sense of the pain, a sense of the anguish there, like that. But a lot of the joy in it as well. It was really, really twisted. That's uh, why I love cosmic horror shit, especially Jeffrey Combs, who is amazing in everything he does. Oh, a- absolutely. And it's like you can see because you know Reanimator, Reanimator being one of their first films, you know, it's still. It's still good, but it had a much lower budget. It's like now they get some more money behind it, and they definitely invested money in practical effects. Definitely. The birthing scenes crawling out of the creature and all the other kinds of stuff are just, like, brutal. <laughs> what, a, just, what a great time in horror. Just the 80s. <laughs> oh, God, 80s horror. Thank, thank you. Thank you for that. I... We wouldn't be able to do what we did. We wouldn't be able to do this if we didn't have yeah, 80s horror. True. True, true. Oh, well, yeah. Moving forward. Go ahead. Oh, yeah. No, I just, I, I agree. It's just that um, when you start, we get to an age before a lot of CGI and stuff like that that can cover up a lot of things where you had to make it and figure out how to work it. You had to actually be creative. I know. In, in a creative industry. A concept. <laughs> God. That, that one came out 1024. 1025. Now, we got to go to a place in our lives that uh, it's, it's something that, something that uh, 
I'm going to be talking today, right now, about one of the original, I want to say one of the most prolific slasher films, uh, Halloween, came out 1025-1978, and uh, I say most prolific, and I, I guess because it, it kind of started a whole era of this type of film, um, or, or more perfected it, I should say, and so Halloween came out, uh, it got released, it, Halloween, if you've never seen Halloween, you've just missed out on horror in general, um, Jamie Lee Curtis, you got Donald Pleasance, uh, all starting these roles, Jamie Lee Curtis was a teenager when this movie was shot, uh, with her mom being previously in, um, a movie directed by the same director, uh, her mom was in the 1960. Uh, Psycho, uh, Janet, uh, Janet Lee, mm-hmm. and so so bringing in Jamie Lee Curtis and Donald Pleasance starting off a run of some of the best movies out there, uh, Halloween. And I, I guess I guess I'm kind of holding back a little bit because I want to hear what you guys have to say about this movie before I even. This is the well. Ho- go ahead. Oh, go 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 ahead, man. Yeah, this is this is the movie that brought the mainstream slasher like you had i think a couple of like proto slashers and you know maybe texas chainsaw massacre is maybe the first true slasher the toby hooper one um but this is like all the tropes that make a slasher movie a slasher movie is in halloween and it is done to perfection the timing the movie came out uh, this was actually one of the very first movies to use a steady cam with an opening shot where it's going through the house kind of thing. Um, the right. steady cam has been around maybe a year or two. It's used very limited before that. And this is like, you know, that's one of the iconic shots, the iconic start of the film. And this spawned every slashing movie since then. So Halloween, the, the premise behind this whole movie was this, this guy – as a kid kills his sister and gets locked up. And then it's something like 15 years later. Uh, and, and so the movie is based, uh, in 1978. So they, they released it like a couple of days before Halloween in 1978 to scare the crap out of everybody for that upcoming Halloween. And so when they, when they open up and it's, so the whole premise is it, Michael Myers kills his sister, gets locked up, then he escapes uh, in a prison transfer and he takes off and he goes to this little town where Jamie Lee Curtis uh, is living and uh, it's just murdering everybody. <laughs> just really gets off to kill and pretty much right away and uh, it doesn't stop. And so they, they went through this film and it spawned some of the best and some of the worst movies from that point on. But you see kids even nowadays wearing Michael Myers masks and, you know, not even, not even seeing it. And that just, that impacts the parents so much that they're dressing their kids up as the thing that scared them as kids. And I remember as a kid, I always wanted to see scary movies, but my dad wouldn't, wouldn't go watch them with me. He wouldn't take me to movies. He wouldn't watch scary movies on TV with me. And I always thought it was really weird because, you know, my big tough dad and he won't watch these scary movies. And I thought he just didn't like it. But it turns out, like, in the 70s, people were just, you know, dropping acid left and right. And apparently that's not something you want to do before going to see 
Halloween. <laughs> <laughs> I can see how that would go badly. And so, you know, that movie, I, I mean, you know, being high on LSD probably didn't help, but that movie scared so many people so bad that it still affects them to this day. Like, you know, my dad's, he was born in 61 and he still won't watch scary movies because of the experience he had in that theater. It just being so scared of something. So it's kind of cool def- that that they they went as far as they did as early as they did and then kept it rolling. Yeah, the fact that Absolutely. The, go go ahead. Oh, I was gonna say because not only because whereas uh, Tex Chainsaw in 1974, what you know kind of went with the slasher genre. I can say that I would you know pretty much consider that John Carpenter pretty much brought the slasher film to mainstream with Halloween 1978 and. I think also birthed other genres. Um, birth it gave us the Scream Queen. Yeah. It gave us uh, it gave us the home invasion, uh, the home invasion um, genre. It gave us the, uh, the archetype, the the almost Jungian uh, character characterization of Michael Myers, which would go into you know inspiring other masked killers. Um, you could say that Carpenter was riffing off of Tex Chainsaw, but with the, you know, having a mass killer like this, but the, the concept of being, I think, uh, playing off of the notion of a more gritty realism of no motive. This is simply what this guy is. Um, that whole Donald Pleasance monologue about, you know, the, the, uh, the eyes of evil, such a brilliantly delivered speech that just set the tone for the whole film. And obviously an epic, epic franchise starter that I don't think that anybody's like, there's a whole library of information uh, basically about behind the scenes. I have a friend who's a, who's a, a, who's a horror actor and absolutely loves this movie. And around this time, he's always posting up behind the scenes shots and behind the scenes tidbits about uh, Halloween and about the making, you know, the making of process and everything that John Carpenter and his wife Deborah went through to get this thing made. And Jamie Lee Curtis's experiences, and you know the whole turning the William Shatner mask, the 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 Captain Kirk mask into the the Michael Myers mask, which is a favorite. Le- it was a favorite uh, story about that film. But yeah, because they, they gave they us painted so- it and dyed the hair and. Oh yeah, just totally, just totally fucked with it because they couldn't because what I think the what they originally had wasn't what just what didn't work. From respect, so they needed something quick, and uh, their uh, effects guy. Just happened to he found this mask and just went to work on it, and lo and behold, there's our the iconic <laughs> white, you know, pale white mask of Michael Myers, um, which I think was brilliantly brought back in the new in the new one in oh, uh, the Danny Mc, mm-hmm. the Danny McBride Blumhouse production that just came out. Um, I'm so glad we're gonna get two more in that series. That's good. So That's awesome. an enduring <laughs> legacy. Hey, you know that that mask was a, a dollar. So <laughs> it was the original mask was a dollar and they, they just made it happen. So there was supposed to, they gave, um, they gave a choice of two masks in the film. And it, when it came down to it, it, cause one of them was like a clown mask, uh, with like, you know, curly red hair, it, it, like a, a traditional, it was supposed to pay homage to him when they, um, when he kills his sister, he's wearing a clown outfit. And uh, so there was an option of the clown mask, which is like this, you know, more expensive professional mask. And then this $1, 
the Kirk mask that they just, you know, totally messed up. And they chose the Kirk mask because the mask didn't show any emotion. And so instead of being a smiling clown, it was this emotionless face, which, you know, it gets played off through the whole movie. It's this perfect terror because you've got this killer who has no real motive to be killing the people that he's killing. He's just killing because that's like what she said, what he does. And so just being in a normal suburban neighborhood, living your life and running into this terror that is completely just devoid of emotion. There's no motive. You know, there's no, there's no space for like a why me. It's just because, and that, you know, putting that out right before Halloween when you're supposed to be letting your kids walk around and, just... <laughs> and that played in that played into even the even the the credits themselves because Carpenter credited uh, him as the shape, yeah, instead yeah. of Michael Myers. Yeah, just the the upon this the the ethereal quality of just evil, right? Walking about having oh. to take human form in this one deal, in this in this one particular instance. But it definitely like Jaws for like Jaws for the water. This definitely did for Halloween. Absolutely, it was it was John Carpenter was the movie. It just it went so smoothly, and uh, you know they filmed this in twenty days, uh, and they ended up actually filming it out in like it was like California or something, and the movie's supposed to take place you know in in the fall in Illinois, and so just having to deal with they had to like buy plastic leaves and paint them the colors that they wanted, and they reused those. They wrapped it all up in 20 days. There's some shots in the movie that you can see palm trees, you know, and the, the trees are all green, but all of a sudden there's all these leaves all over the ground in the backyard. And so, like, just having to be able to adapt, overcome, stay calm, keep this cast together, which everybody worked so well together. And, I mean, Jamie Lee Curtis was great, and a lot of her pull in that movie came from her mom previously working with him and being in that film beforehand, but I think it all came together so well, so smooth. Um, unfortunately, not all the movies in the series came together like that, but that it was done so well that you could watch it today and it would still, it would still be a relevant fear in people's eyes. Yeah, I think it- that's why I love, that's why I love the, the new one that just came out, um, that Blumhouse put out because you could literally watch that first one and ignore everything in between. Yeah. Two through, you know, whatever, and go all the way up to the to the twenty nineteen, uh, Halloween, and you only need those two, and you know, brilliance for Blumhouse and for Danny Danny McBride and everyone about to to just continue the story from the first film, Absolutely. and really, really pay respect to John Carpenter and the work that John Carpenter did and the legacy that that he has created. Absolutely. Absolutely. And we've talked about with, you know, some of these other directors like Sam Raimi and the Evil Dead series is when you get somebody who's passionate about his project, it only had a budget of about $300,000, which is nothing in, in the movie world. That's nothing at all. And you make it work. They couldn't afford a symphony for the soundtrack. So John Carpenter just did it himself. John Carpenter. Kind of thing. And he... He, he took a lot of inspiration from uh, Superio, which is an Italian horror film. Um, you know, there's just there's just there's just a certain level of passion, and maybe that's why a lot of the sequels have fell short because as the sequels kind of feel like a cash grab for the franchise, this is like there was 
there was no franchise at this point. This was just John Carpenter who had an idea and him and his wife working hard to get a movie made. Yeah, absolutely. Definitely. Uh, let's see. All right. So moving on to our next film, which actually was released almost a year and one day later, is a movie called When the Stranger Calls. Uh, when the Stranger Calls. Oh, dude. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I remember this one. Uh, definitely. Oh, this is a creepy one. Yeah, you know, we you want to talk about in terms of like the home invasion movie, that kind of feeling, that kind of eeriness, um, you know, movies that take place in reality, kind of thing that can happen to anybody, and this this falls right in that category. Uh, it's directed by Fred Walton, right, and it stars Charles Durning and Carol Kane in it. And there are so many iconic moments. And this is basically, it talks about how a babysitter is babysitting his children. And then she goes and she gets a call. Have you checked on the children? Kind of thing. Which already has like an eeriness of itself. Like, wait, what? How do you like, know no, you but now, now I'm going to. <laughs> <laughs> but, it, you know, it's like, I'm going to now, but maybe that's what the killer wants. <laughs> <laughs> kind of talk, about, talk about not being in control of the situation <laughs> yeah definitely one of the definitely one of the better films one of the better films to play off of the of the urban legend um of the the killers calling from inside the house that the calls coming from inside, inside calls coming from inside the house yes god and it's so yeah I, like that would that would be absolutely terrible and then what do you do what do you do in that situation like, um, okay, well, I'm no longer going to be inside the house, so bye. <laughs> but you can't but then, leave like, the kids are there. But you got the kids. It's like, oh, man. It's damn kids, man. It's not I, worth it's just, this $5 like, an do? hour take off running. <laughs> you're, so, you're so stuck in that situation that, like, that's what's scary about it. And you just, <laughs> you got you to do something. You better figure it out. Now, if I remember, if I remember correctly, um, I haven't seen the movie in quite a while, but it was that, uh, it was that first, like, 20 or so minutes, that opening of the film, which I think is widely regarded as one of the scariest opening shots in any, in in any horror film. Absolutely. That it was that, yeah, it was that slow kind of move through the house, and uh, Wes Craven paid homage to that with Scream, with the opening minutes of Scream. Yep. And you can see the influence of you can see the influence of it in Scream, kind of thing. Because I always felt like Scream kind of took the best tropes and visited the best slasher movies, and then kind of congealed it into its own like slasher. And the first ten minutes of Scream is when a stranger calls. That's where it comes from. God, what? Yeah. Such a classic that 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 an urban an <laughs> urban folk legend. Of 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 that was you know so long ago of the the babysitter and the man upstairs, uh, has traversed time to that extent that it's still effective today, and I think a lot of our stuff. I mean, I think those those urban legends, those old folk tales, scary folk tales, you know, have just they're going to be with us forever and constantly give us fantastic you know ideas like when a stranger calls and it's going to spawn even more. Uh, influ- you know, it's going to influence even further. I think I just—that's why I love this genre. It just keeps building upon itself. They—they uh, they redid when a stranger calls, didn't they? 
And yeah, I mean, I agree. It's something that it can take these situations that we commonly find ourselves in and twist it on your head because any girl could be babysitting. Any girl or guy could be babysitting. It's a job, something where uh, preteens and teenagers can find themselves in all the time kind of thing. And then just like that, it's like one phone call. Now it's one of the most terrifying experiences of your life. Well, yeah, yeah I so mean, now, now we've got the, color the of idea of someone being just the idea of someone being in the house that you're not aware of. Yeah, you know that was and that was that movie made such an impact at that time too. They, I was just looking at it. They they did redo that movie in 2006. <coughs> and so and so just to, you know just to give a little bit of like a couple of plot points in it. So you know starts off with our main character. Uh, Jill, who is the one babysitting the children, and she starts getting that phone call. She starts negotiating the situation, and they end up they go and they find the attacker at this point, and you know they lock him up in an asylum and everything like that, and it seems to be okay. And then seven years later, right? Of course, you know Duncan the killer escapes. And he starts hunting people down, and you start seeing you start seeing Jill, who had this experience when she was a teenager, and now she's an adult, and she has her own children, and then he comes back. So now it's even more terrifying because it's not someone else's kids, it's your own kids. And then the kill the calls coming from within the house. Definitely some trappings of Black Christmas in there too. Oh, definitely. I think they came out around, uh, I think Black Christmas came out, what, later this year? Something like that? Well, uh, there was a, that, that was a remake. That was a, there was a, re, there, I think there's another one coming out, but I think the original one, um, I think that original was, was also 74. Yeah, it was just, uh, it was just, uh, October 11th. So it, they, I think it definitely fed off that whole, that concept of someone being in the house, and then, re- and then, and then the the villain returning to the scene of the crime. Yeah, turn, you know, the unfinished business kind of thing. Like, and then... these poor people alone, dude. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously. <clears throat> exactly. You know, exactly. There was a remake that came out in two thousand five, two thousand six, but you got to you have to pay homage to the original on this one. Absolutely. The 2006 remake with the uh, when she's got the Motorola Razor, just to really connect with the kids on that one. <laughs> <laughs> Which kind of takes away from the whole landline thing, but at the same time, you know, they still like triangulate the call. And then it's coming from inside. Well, yeah. You haven't seen this movie? It came out like. <laughs> well, that that's the messed up thing is that when you have rotary phones and all and and alternative and, and basically you know going off different lines. I could see someone pulling it off that way, but with that one, yes, we've triangulated the call. It is coming, is pinging off a cell tower within you know a hundred yards of your house. <laughs> We're not a hundred percent sure exactly where, but well, that's that's why the house was so big in the remake was because you know they had to cover that whole triangulation. <laughs> they really they really worked it in there, man. <laughs> Technology is killing us. <laughs> we need bigger houses. Bigger and bigger houses. <laughs> More places to run. <laughs> oh, like a very classic chiller. Uh, really, really, and I and I and I love Carol Kane to death. She is so fantastic in everything she does. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Well, we also have 
some birthdays this week. Some three fantastic birthdays. I think the the guys that we that we love the most. Um, on born October twentieth, nineteen fifty eight, was Vigo Mortensen, the man who will be Aragorn. Yes. But I, we bring him up because he actually, in early in his career, started in a couple. I had had a few. He even even he has a few horror films under his belt. Uh, he was Satan in the Prophecy. Mm-hmm. Okay. Oh yeah. And with uh with um. Christopher Walken, who's played Gabriel, and his, and arguably, it was up there, his depiction, even though it was just towards the end of the film, and it was a small segment, he threw himself into that, and I think his his portrayal of Satan goes up there with, um, with Al Pacino in Devil's Advocate, okay. so, because he threw his usual, like, method, everything into this depiction, um, Absolutely fantastic actor. I absolutely love Vigo in all of his work. Um, oh yeah, happy birthday, Vigo! Happy birthday, Vigo happy Mortensen! Birthday. Uh, coming up a couple days after. You know what? Actually, let me go back to uh, October twentieth. I'd like to say happy birthday to my mom. She's uh, oh, happy birthday! October oh yeah, 20th. happy birthday! <laughs> so uh, that love you, mom. And then uh, coming up a couple days after that, uh, no, not after, I can't say that out loud. Give away her age. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, 1022, uh, 1952, one of the, one of the most versatile actors on the planet, Jeff Goldblum. Happy birthday to him. Man, he's, he's getting up there for sure, but he's done, he's done so many things in his career. And like you say, versatile doesn't even you wouldn't even be able to describe this man but movies that he would be most known for i think in the horror industry if you've seen it the fly um a movie which you know mad scientist decides he's going to try to do some crazy stuff what was his teleportation right his teleportation yeah and so yeah he makes a teleport machine and then the fly flies in and you know everything's okay until it's not and he starts to become more fly-like as the cells break down and and uh so i mean that was that was a great movie you know an earlier movie for him for sure and then obviously coming up on at jurassic park and independence day he death wish i think was one of the earlier films that he was in long 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 time ago movie where uh god it's been so long but there was a essentially it was like a breaking entering murdered his wife type film um oh wow i mean yeah. But yeah that that was that was back in like 74 so that was one of his earlier movies and then yeah i mean just that stretch uh, of, i'll always i'll always remember cronenberg's the fly because that whole it, probably his best body horror film ever and jeff goldblum gina davis you know were so fantastic in that movie and yeah definitely a, a classic classic horror really really good take on that kind of uh, really broke the rules as far as uh conventional horror what people were in, or expecting and anticipating and uh he brought all of his talent into that one you could tell he was he really really loved playing that role he really enjoyed it that was so that different was at the time too pushing the limit yeah 
you get into you get into everything we were talking about today you know kind of that 70s 80s slasher you got these killer movies and stuff and then you, you kind of break off into this you know scientific type horror which is real cool to see at the time and you don't even see too much of from that point on until later on so definitely ahead of his yeah. time absolutely yeah definitely happy birthday jeff happy birthday jeff goldblum and we have one more one more birthday today. Uh, it's Carrie Elves, born October 26, 1962. Um, you know, obviously people know him from movies like The Prince of Bride and Robin Hood Men in Tights, but he also has been in a lot of impactful horror movies, including the original Saw, which started helped kind of start that torture porn genre that started popping up in the mid-2000s. Um, he was in Saw, Saw 3D. Um, he's actually in a movie that's in post-production right now that I'm kind of interested in. It's another remake of Black Christmas, uh, which is supposed to come out either later, possibly later this year or early next year. Um, so somebody who's been around for a long period of time. He has a lot of iconic characters and has seems like one of the most like friendly celebrities that's probably out there. Like I, I can't I can't even picture him being mad or upset or anything like that. So Oh, I had I had an absolute blast uh back in my journalism days. I got to interview him um when uh the when uh Saw for for part of the Saw franchise when his character came back um after being gone for like most of the series but when he came back i believe it was it was saw 3d i think it was uh the seventh yeah film. saw 3d yeah when all of a sudden we realized the doctor's been behind it the whole time and and, and i got to, i actually got to interview him for a little bit and he was absolutely fantastic very difficult to steer a conversation towards horror when everybody in the gallery wants to talk about princess bride <laughs> um uh, it always comes back to that but yeah but i think well, he was good in Saw. One of his creepiest roles was in Kiss the Girls with oh, Morgan yeah. Freeman and Ashley Judd because he was the Casanova killer in that. And I thought he was absolutely creepy as hell because he, he went both sides because he was – you originally start out, you think he's a good guy. And, you know, this guy's going to help you get stuff done like that. And all of a sudden does the switch. Turns out he's the one who's – he's the Casanova killer who's, like, collecting humans and – and you know all this creepy stuff, but he's he had this moment where he where his demeanor switches and just changes on a dime, and really goes to show the the strength of of his capability and how versatile an actor he is as well. So, happy birthday, Carrie Elwes! Happy birthday! Happy birthday! All right, and that wraps another edition of Week in Horror. We want to thank you all so much for listening. We really hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please subscribe to us on SoundCloud as we drop a new episode every Sunday. You can also find us on Spotify as well. And check out our Facebook page to get your daily splatter, which is a bit of horror history every single day. Just follow us on the page. Thank you all so much again. We couldn't do it without your support. I'm Eugene signing off. This is JL. I'm Alex. And we will see you next week.